I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for students passionate about pursuing careers in the media and entertainment industry. And this is the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. In this series, we'll be talking to some of today's top leaders, executives, and professionals in the media and entertainment industry. We'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. Today's episode features a panel discussion on the art of digital storytelling that took place at the 2017 Future Now Media and Entertainment Conference. The panelists include Megan Wilson, Lisa Shomas, D.T. Softman, and Johnny Duffield. Megan Wilson is an interactive producer at HBO. Megan Wilson is an interactive producer at HBO and leads digital media initiatives for multiple shows including Silicon Valley, Veep, and Sesame Street. Lisa Shomas is a transmedia producer and she's worked with top television studios including HBO, ABC, and Amazon Studios. D.T. Slothman is an Emmy Award-winning producer with more than a thousand hours of television and web programming under his belt. Johnny Duffield is a motion graphics designer and video producer who has created branded content for clients like Harley Davidson, Fox Sports, Jockey, and Maybelline. The panel is moderated by Melody Hum, a writer and reporter who covers entrepreneurship, technology, and startups at Yahoo Finance. The panelists discuss a range of topics, including the future of storytelling, what a career in digital storytelling looks like, and the tools you need to be successful. Take a listen. So I want to start off, actually, you know, storytelling and content creation, they're the buzzwords of the day of the past year. Um, and it seems like any company, whether it's Chubby's, short shorts, I don't know if you guys know what Chubby's are, they're doing content creation and they raised $9 million to do that. Um, but you guys are the original storytellers. And I would love to hear just across the board how you've engaged with digital storytelling. Uh, so, I mean, I'd say at HBO, uh, the, we are a storytelling company, obviously. Um, the work we do in digital, the work I do with Lisa, uh, it is extending the sort of the stories and the vision um, of our showrunners. So that's that's really where it starts. You know, um, I'm sure you guys watch Game of Thrones. I work on Silicon Valley, Westworld. You know, the, such rich storytelling is going into those shows. And so what we do, what Lisa and I do, is to take um, those stories and extend into digital. And, and certain shows at HBO um, don't really lend themselves to to that kind of storytelling, but um, a Game of Thrones, a Westworld, a Silicon Valley, a Veep. Um, there's a lot of just rich, rich, uh, rich opportunities for for digital storytelling, for apps, for websites, um, sort of, etc. So, so really, for HBO, it, it's the, the starting and the kernel of the of the of the showrunners and um, and their and their vision. Yeah, Megan and I work very closely together. So I think I'm going to say ditto to a lot of things she says, <laughs> but. Um, uh, yeah, I think with the expansion of the internet, I think it's opened us up for a lot of very non-traditional uh, marketing efforts. And I think digital storytelling and world uh, building is um, one of those ways. And, and before the internet, you had things like you know publishing. And, and when I, I worked on Ugly Betty, but I also worked on another ABC, ABC show called Castle. Um, and one of the transmedia efforts, and by the way, transmedia by definition is uh, multi-platform storytelling. And, um, and again, right now we're seeing a lot of that multi-platform storytelling in the digital world, but before that, 
uh, you could do a lot in the publishing world. And uh, we had a character, uh, Richard Castle, who was a best-selling novelist within the story. And so we actually published Richard Castle novels in the real world, and they were New York Times bestsellers <laughs> nine times over. <laughs> and uh, we had Marvel graphic novels, and we had, you know, I mean, this, that, and the other. You know, we had we had games and and all of that. So we could do a lot of websites, micro websites, and we can do apps and now, and we can do social media. But before that, there was a lot of uh, world building that went beyond digital. So. Um, for me, I produced uh, sports television shows for a number of years, among other, other types of programming, docu-series, reality shows, documentaries. Um, and I got into digital um, by dint of the corporation's needs. So Time Inc. is trying to figure out, like everyone else, how to get you to engage with their content. But at the same time, they still have to sell it. And the only way that they were able to actually sell their digital content initially was to sell advertisers on the idea of a series, because that's what everybody knows, right? We all know the television model. And until we figure out how to truly monetize digital, that's still the easiest way for them to sell. So what they did is they created, they started their whole digital um, experience across all of their publishing platforms with SI Now, which was a half-hour daily digital show, a la something you would see on ESPN or CNN. And so they brought me in as a television producer because I understood how to do that to create that content. And then we would break it up into pieces. So every day I would go in, and, the, and, and it was a great exercise for me. It's actually helped me tremendously as I've moved on from SI Now. But to look at something and figure out how can I tell that story, do it succinctly in different ways, but yet make it seamless so that the half hour, television half hour, 22 to 24 minutes makes sense and feels good if you watch it in its entirety, how each segment feels good and makes sense if you watch it in its entirety, but also how that one minute to 90 seconds that we break out of it and push through an article or through Twitter or another uh, Facebook or YouTube channel will get your attention and bring you in so hopefully you engage with the content. So sales was actually the driver that uh, pulled me into digital and uh, it, was, it was one of the best moves I think I've ever made. Hey guys. Um, for me, digital storytelling takes a little bit of a different angle than I think most people who are speaking because I primarily work on not the TV side, not the content side, but I work with companies, so more in the ad space. Um, but for me, digital storytelling means that every company has a story that they want to tell. You know, every, every product wants to tell the story behind that product. And I think that's really important to our generation because we care about the products we're buying. We care about are we buying things from a credible source? You know, what are we giving our money to? And so for me, most of the work I do is finding out, okay, this company, say it be Harley Davidson or say it be Jockey Underwear or whatever, what are they trying to say? Who are they trying to reach? What's the demographic they're trying to reach? And then I actually am editing, doing the motion graphics and helping them achieve that story 
in a polished way, so. Cool, and I think yesterday, Mary Meeker, who's a longtime internet analyst, um, she's now at Kleiner Perkins, which is a venture firm, she releases a like 350 page report on internet trends, and one of the slides that really stood out to me was 70% of people surveyed had a positive image of interactive ads. It's not even neutral. They actually enjoy it, and they don't mind engaging in it, of course, when the alternative is watching a two-minute ad straight through. So that I just thought of that because as you're talking, you know, you're constantly, all four of you are constantly thinking about how to engage the consumer, not only for time, but just making them want to, to be on that website that Silicon Valley was able to launch or being able to use that product. Um, I would love to talk about Silicon Valley actually and uh, some of the initiatives you guys have done offline or online. Um, can you explain a little bit about the app and the website and how you've been able to tap into the consumer? Sure, I'll, I'll start and then Lisa can expand. Um, so I worked in Silicon Valley for a couple years. Um, it's in its fourth season right now. Who watches Silicon Valley? Yay. Yay. <laughs> Has anyone downloaded Not Hot Dog? Okay. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, so uh, I started season two in Silicon Valley. We had one website uh, with the introduction of Lisa in season three. It was night and day. So. Um, Lisa's job is to, and I won't really speak for her job, but she helps us sort of translate, helps us translate what the showrunners, Mike Judge and Alec Berg, are interested in for this season, um, any websites they want to focus on, any sort of stories they are telling in that 30-minute segment every week, and w which of those stories we're extending in, in, into digital. So um, for those of you guys who are, who are familiar with the show, we have, I think, eight websites live right now. We've, we just launched, I think, our eighth. So it's Pipe Piper, it's Hooli.com, Bream Hall, we just launched, Raviga Capital, Enframe, uh, Bachmanity. We had a website for Homicide, Homicide Energy Drink, which is hilarious. It's a hilarious <laughs> website. Um, these are all web presences that the showrunners, I mean, sorry, the, 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 the writers on the show are actually writing, so it is truly the voice of the show. A lot of the art is coming um, through Lisa and her team. Um, we just launched, um, for those of you guys who are watching this season, I think episode four, Jin Yang was working on an app that was the Shazam for food. If you guys are familiar with that. Um, it only Shazammed hot dogs, so the app only tells you if it's a hot dog or not a hot dog. Um, <clears throat> and we made that thing in real life. We, we launched it in the Apple Store uh, a couple weeks ago. So, and it's gotten Download a it. lot of really great pickup, and it's really fun, and that was something, I'll let Lisa speak to it, but that, I know Mike Judge and Alec Berg were really interested in, in seeing sort of come to fruition. We've gotten a lot of great press pickup. Um, I'll just expand a little bit, because I think that you guys are a group of uh, younger, I don't know if you're students or you're just coming out of college, but. Um, just to educate you on, on what I do, because it's an emerging position within the industry. It's not something that's mainstream yet. Even the people that I work with on a daily basis kind of look at me and go, what do you do? <laughs> um, 
That's the but, best, though. <laughs> you know that's up yeah, and coming. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but I feel like we're sort of on the verge of, you know, a tipping point of, you know, studios like HBO recognizing that um, it, it's helpful to have somebody on the show side to speak for the showrunners and the creators and all of that in terms of promotional content. And um, because when you identify a show as like a franchise show um, where you're gonna be creating a lot of uh, additional content, um, you need somebody on the show side because you have to have the involvement of the show. You know, it, it would be remiss of a studio not or a network not to to leave the show's voice out of it because really, in my opinion, and something that I really respect HBO for is that they really do take the show the show's opinions and thoughts and creative on the marketing side and, um, and, and they really listen to their creators and their ideas and execute. Um, but what I do is, again, I work with all the promotional departments and, um, and, I, and I have to know the, what the show really wants in terms of you know, um, content and, and additional stuff. And, and so I get a phone call last July and, um, and it was one of our associate producers saying, so the guys wanna make a uh, an app that re recognizes whether something's a hot dog or not a hot dog. And I was like, wait, what are we doing? <laughs> and I didn't know the context, I didn't know the story, I didn't know anything, because they're in the writer's room and I'm not in the writer's room with them. And, um, and so then it becomes, you know, me taking this to HBO, and I have to be the translator, and I have to sell HBO on it. Not, not hard, because again, they are so friendly with their creatives. Um, and, uh, and so I have to take it, and, and so I have to work between a, a whole bunch of different groups of people um, to see this through. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, and, and, and also to sort of weed out, you know, different, like, uh, one of my big questions was, are, are we gonna make this like thing have bells and whistles? And really, no. I mean, the joke is that this is the stupidest app ever created, right? And it reflects how saturated Silicon Valley is. Right, it, you know, it exactly. reflects reality. So. Exactly, exactly. And, and really, we're mocking that whole culture. And, um, and, you know, and it's, you know, cause there's a, you know, a lot of voices and a lot of opinions and a lot of things, you know, do we want to add a ding here? Do we want to add Jin Yang's voice coming through there? And, you know, no, we want to make this thing as dumb as possible. So it's like, <laughs> you know, so it's really, it's really, you know, a big part of my job is also to understand what the fandom really loves about this show. Mm -hmm. To almost study, you know, what's coming through Twitter, Reddit, um, Facebook, you know, all of that. I think a big part of my job, you know, I am not the corporate side, which I think Megan and her teams, they have a lot of uh, access to information about trends and digital trends. I don't have that information. They'll give it to me whenever I ask for it. I think it's more my job to understand what the trends of our audience are, what they're tapped into, what they love. You know, Jin Yang is a character that's not featured on the show, but it is beloved by the fandom. And so what can we do to sort of bring him and draw him out more in, you know, our additional content? So, right. so yeah. And JT, it's interesting because you mentioned with sports programming, it's a bit different. 
or when you're thinking about bite-sized things or nuggets that users engage with, it's a different strategy than perhaps entertainment. Tell me a little bit about well, that. Well, we didn't know it at first, but, but just like she was saying, you know, trying to find out what your specific audience, not only what they want to see, but what they're willing to sit through, right? The, I think the common refrain in digital is shorter is better. So we would, you know, we'd all sit in these meetings and try to figure out, well, what's the best one minute we can push out? What's the best 90 seconds? How did we, you know, can we tell a complete story in that time? And through trial and error, what we found, especially with sports, was that you all are actually willing to sit longer and sit through what I would call a short-form documentary almost, something between 6 and 13 minutes maybe. And if we tell a great story and we actually profile something, so we're telling you the how and the why, you'll sit through it. And we found not only will you sit through it, you'll tell your friends about it. And it may not even be something that you thought you'd be interested in. Almost like the hot dog app, we were, <laughs> we were blown away when we did a, a profile piece on the Philly Fanatic, which is uh, the Philadelphia Phillies mascot, who is essentially a giant green Muppet. And, <laughs> and he, he really is. He was created, uh, designed by a woman named Bonnie Erickson, who created Miss Piggy for Jim Henson, among other other Muppet creations. But we went and we interviewed Bonnie and we interviewed her blind husband who deals with the numbers and the executive at the Phillies who you know ordered the idea in the first place and the two guys who'd been in the costume. There've only been two in the 30 some years that the Fanatics existed. Uh, we talked to great members of the team who were jealous of the Fanatics popularity. <laughs> and, we, and we crafted this whole you know 13 minute mini film that told you a story about a mascot and as if the mascot was actually a person. And we cut a one minute teaser, we targeted it, and we got two million retweets on that in like less than a day. And it drove traffic like bananas to you know the film. And, and uh, so we were, we were shocked. We thought, oh, maybe it's not just about those little one minute things. We can do longer, they'll stay. Um, and I think sports, when you, tell, when you tell a story right with sports, you have a little more latitude to play with than you may have in other forms of uh, you know, other areas of the digital space. Cool. And Johnny, when it comes to your editing process, how do you think about the consumer? I know you say you're ultimately beholden to the company that you're working for, but how do you configure the ultimate, you know, all of us watching that ad? I mean, it's kind of different from client to client. I think you kind of have to know the company you're working for. So some of the companies I work for there is the ability for me to step in and say, hey, your target audience is not going to like what we're making because I know the audience, because I am a millennial and you're trying to target millennials and they're not going to like this. And other clients, I don't have that ability. Some clients that I'm making uh, a video for, literally I just have to do what they tell me to do because that's what they want and they're paying the bills, you know? But I think that you kind of have to, you have to read the room with the person you're working with. You know, you have to understand, okay, how much of a voice do I have here as an editor? 
Sometimes when I'm editing, there's a director or a producer standing over my shoulder mm -hmm. calling every shot. Sometimes I am essentially the director. They just give me footage and I have to edit a story out of it, you know? So I think you have to take each project you work on and you have to be flexible and you have to be creative and you have to know what the person you're working for wants and be willing to put in the work to deliver it. And kind of stemming off of that to all the aspiring media professionals out there, when do you draw the line? Or how, when can you use your creative decision making? Um, in our previous conversation, Joan had a, an approach of, you know, you should have conviction and be persistent. And if you have a vision, go for it. But you know, realistically speaking, for people just starting out in their careers, how much leeway do you have? And you can speak to your own experience or just witnessing what's going on in the industry. I mean, for me, I have kind of the mentality that I don't have a creative agenda with anything. So I don't, I don't come to the table with a creative agenda. I come to the table with the agenda of telling the client's story. But morally speaking, there are lines that I'll draw. Um, I was contacted at one point by a um, political super PAC about making some online pseudo news stories. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to have the hard conversation with them and say, look, I'll work for you, but here's a couple things that I'm not gonna support. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna work on a product. If you start getting into these things, morally speaking, I don't feel comfortable with that and they never called me back. You know, so sometimes you're gonna, sometimes you're gonna lose a job, sometimes you're gonna lose money over something that you believe, and I think that's okay. But I think for, for young creatives, my personal advice to you would be, don't bring a creative agenda to the table. You know, it's not your story that, the story doesn't belong to you, I think we were talking about that. Um, it belongs to the person telling the story. We talked about that. We, we spoke yesterday, um, knowing that we would be here to talk to all of you. And I echo Johnny's uh, statement there. You want to bring your creative um, abilities to every project you work on, um, regardless of what it may be, but you don't want to stand in the way of the story. And sometimes, you know, you can actually think, oh, well, I have this idea and I have this vision for it and it's this, but it's really, truly not your story. The people I interview that I put in these pieces, it's their story. I'm a facilitator. Someone asked me one time, you know, what, is a, what does a producer actually do, right? And, and I like to say that I collect people and I connect with them. Right, and if I do that well, I'm, I'm able to better facilitate the story and not be a roadblock. But a lot of times, you know, we can think we're helping the story, right? Oh, well, if I do this, but I'm standing in the way. Um, and it's not gonna be as good. It's not my story, it's their story. Um, and they've been either, e either by grace, right? They've been gracious enough to let me tell it, or by dint of circumstance, I have to tell it. Um, whether they want me to or not, but I don't want to get in the way of that. And I think that when you come to it with an agenda, you can actually harm the story, but you can do more than that. You can, you know, you really do have a lot of power. Even, even just starting out in the business, what you bring to the table can direct the flow of opinion when someone watches it. 
And you want to be real careful with that. I mean, ethically, you know, you're talking ethically what you take and what you don't take. I think there's an ethic that needs to be addressed on how you cover something, how you tell the story you want to tell. Um, you know, and in the digital space where things never go away, you know, there's, there's a real weight to that. I kind of want to shift gears and speak to you ladies about, well, first of all, who here is a cord cutter? Oh, fewer than I thought. But I think specifically when we're, you know, every day it's like all these media companies are struggling and they're all going digital and they want these bite-sized pieces to attract millennials and it's shareable and Instagram worthy. What is your take on the future of media? I know that's a daunting question, but we're specifically focused on digital storytelling. Is that going to be the mainstay? Pretty soon, will it be the hot dog app and then a show stemming off of an app? You know, will it be the reverse? These are the, the things that I wonder, as people are looking at prospective jobs, where they should be focusing their attention when it comes to the future of opportunities. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I can speak for HBO and just say that uh, I don't think our sort of business model is going away. I mean, we, you know, I know we, we sort of started as a, um, I probably should sort of uh, get my brush up on my HBO history, but, you know, it's a sort of originally a boxing um, network. Um, uh, but we've, you know, I don't know if, how many of you guys watched the Wire or Sex and the City or The Sopranos, but we've, you know, HBO is, has been making sort of good slash the best TV. Um, for, Not that you're biased. Right, no. <laughs> um, for a while. I mean, just really sort of rich. So yeah. I think at least for HBO, a lot of our storytelling is going to originate there. Um, Do you think the ratio will change? Do you think it might sway more to digital? Yeah, I mean, I think we are going to see, we've, we're, uh, I'm not in the programming department, but, but um, I think we're, we're dipping our toes a little bit into some, some digital exclusive, mm -hmm. you know, programming. Um, some, we launched HBO Now a couple years ago. Previously, HBO Go was just a complement to your, to your linear sort of subscription. Um, and we've, we've um, seen quite a big sort of pickup there. So thinking about how we, we keep sort of driving that. Um, I mean, uh, um, connected homes are a big, a big arena. You know, Google and um, Amazon are the big players there. I mean, I, I think um, stories are sort of popping up everywhere. And I know HBO is sort of looking across the board. But um, I, I think we're probably s we'll stick to our kind of our, our core. But paying attention to, yeah. to what's going on. And you work on Insecure as well, right? And I don't know if you guys know, but Issa Rae, she started as a web, web series, and then it got picked up on HBO. Same with uh, Broad City. It started as a web series and then ended up on Comedy Central. So it just shows digital is a launching pad no matter where it ends up going. Mm -hmm. um, people are looking online. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable that we're heading towards more heavily digital, you know, uh, uh, content being produced, and and I am a cord cutter as well. So, um, and I work in the industry, so I should really um, advertise that. But um, you know, for me, I I would I would personally love to see shows starting um, in the v development phase. Um, where there is a part of the story that is completely told 
um, outside of the broadcast arena and and that you're sort of forced into this like additional content, but it's, it doesn't even become additional at that point. It becomes like parallel and and finding new and innovative innovative ways to do that. I would I would love to see that start happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but we'll see. Some some have you know like Banshee I think came close to it and um, but. Uh, I think that'd be very cool. Yeah, and DT, um, you're also a professor of media and at Ashbury College. Asbury. Asbury, Asbury College. Asbury, yeah. And you guys have like a little setup out there, so everyone can come <laughs> look at that banner. Uh, but when you're thinking about even the different style of teaching or the content that you're focusing on, how has that changed even over the past year um, when it comes to the shift from traditional to sure. digital? Well, it's interesting. So I'm an adjunct professor. The campus of the university is in Kentucky. I think you heard Peggy say that this morning. But I teach from either my apartment here in New York City or my house in Pennsylvania, and we do it all in a virtual classroom. So even, Case in the, point, yeah. even the teaching is different than it would have been, say, when you know, I was you know, in college you know, many moons ago in a physical classroom. <laughs> um, but, uh, but all of that to say, the one thing that I think we have to keep in mind, and, and I try to drive this home with the students that I have, is that there are certain intangibles that will never change. And whether you're, whether you're in digital or broadcast, whether you're covering sports or the news, whether you're working in scripted, whether you're doing reality that may be scripted or not, you need to know how to write, and you need to know how to write well. And to me, that's the most important thing. Um, you know, understand the mediums, understand how they work, understand how you can make them work for you, but writing is really the thing that is at the core of every story, right? Understanding how to, how to have a, a thesis statement and then make it consistent and the voice of the story you're trying to tell. You know, you, you've heard uh, them multiple times talk about a showrunner. Well, I was the showrunner of my show, and one of the most important things the showrunner does is, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of show it is, but you're in, you're in charge for making sure, uh, in charge of making sure that that voice is the right voice, it's the voice that is gonna resonate with you and that it's consistent. And that's really at the heart of every story. And writing and knowing how to write well is, is the one thing that uh, if you can't do it, you know, there'll be jobs in the business you can get, but that's the one thing that you'll be able to translate into so many different spaces in this business. And when you have to pivot as technology changes, or when you know, you know, you're asking whether or not digital is going to, you know, essentially take the lead. I think, in essence, that that shift's already happening, and SVOD is really leading the charge. But it doesn't matter; it's still content. And if you don't know how to uh, be able to outline and tell those stories, and like I say, writing is the key to that, I think you're at a disadvantage. There are fundamentals of storytelling that no matter what the medium is or how it changes, I'm gonna teach again and again and again to my students because they are uh, building blocks. Right, and Johnny, 
when it comes to when you're doing something for a digital campaign versus just traditional broadcast, how is your thinking different, if at all? I mean, I think that with digital, I think it gives us the opportunity to be more targeted than it does with you know traditional methods of distribution. I think that with digital, you can be extremely targeted because the person viewing it is viewing it because they've chosen to view it. Like you were saying earlier, there's people who will sit through things because they care. If you're just throwing that up on a traditional method of distribution, um, it's, it's a different mindset, you know, because when you're surfing the internet and you go to something, like YouTube ads, ads for instance, you know the little skip thing that you can do? Okay, you don't skip it if you're interested in what they're saying. You sit there and watch it, or at least I do. If they're saying something really interesting, I'll sit there and watch the ad. But if I'm not interested, I'll skip it. And so I think when your mindset, when you get inside that mindset, then you can produce content that's very tailored to specific people, specific audiences, and you don't worry about everybody else. Mm. Because your client is trying to reach a specific demographic, and so you produce that content with that in mind, and the people who care will sit there and they will watch it. Yeah, I've actually accidentally skipped an ad. It was a Clinique commercial with Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin, and I looked it up after. That's how good it was, because it was her and her parents, and she was talking about her story. Anyway, I'd like to open it up to the audience, because we have about 10 minutes, and I'd love to get more questions in. Yeah, we'll take you right there. Hey, this is a question for Lisa. Um, you mentioned before a couple things like the books for Castle um, and then uh, the app for Silicon Valley. That's obviously something that like comes through a completely separate medium when you're talking about the show versus the additional content. It feels more like complementary. If you think about something like like Amazon's X-Ray where it's like more something where it's like dual screen viewing or something like that and changing the way people are actually you know, consuming the actual show, do you get any kind of pushback from showrunners or anything like that? Or do you have to be careful about that in terms of like not impinging on the actual content? I love your question. <laughs> oh my God. So I worked on the X-Ray app for Man in the High Castle. One of my, I think the, the biggest project I worked on for Man in the High Castle was coming up with uh, X-Ray additional facts, like almost like pop-up video content. Um, uh, like additional facts about what you're seeing on the show. Um, and we wanted to go so far with this. We wanted to do character backstory. We wanted to, um, it, we wanted to go into the thinking about, uh, you know, why they designed this certain um, costume uh, this way or that way or whatever. And not only did we get legal roadblocks, but we got roadblocks from the creator showrunner because he didn't want to get pigeonholed. He didn't want to go beyond the storytelling of what you're seeing. He wanted to leave it open for seasons, you know, two, three, four, five, and six. Um, and so for me, 
I was always a little disappointed in what we put out there. And, and I to by, by the way, I totally agreed with him. <laughs> I didn't, you know, want, I, I didn't want, uh, you know, um, his storytelling in the show to suffer because of our marketing efforts. Um, and, but at the same time, um, we actually wrote some of that content and it never made it in. And it's it, uh, what got cut out of what, um, what we put forward was some of the more interesting stuff that was written for it. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it gets, sometimes it gets disappointing. And you definitely, um, uh, again, even this even came up in conversation with the Not Hot Dog app. Like, do you give the app more backstory than what you see in the show? Um, and, and the answer is sort of no, you know, um, because, you know, Again, you don't want to start making things up that may then contradict future storytelling in the show. So, very good question. What's required of me to like work for HBO? Because I'm I'm really like um, fascinated. Um, boxing is my passion, so I follow <laughs> it since like I was a kid. Um, particularly, I follow like um, like the pay-per-views you guys like sell out like on um, on TV. Um, I heard um like the pay-per-view like May six they're like huge numbers. So, what do you how do you guys like feel about like the accomplishments you guys like make daily on like pay-per-views? I mean, so I don't work in the in the sports and boxing space. Um, but I, we were actually chatting about it earlier. I mean, that's th those I've actually been to a couple of fights, which which has been a great perk of the of the job. But um, <laughs> uh, we're I mean, HBO is super proud of all of the accomplishments. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of, I know, um, so I can't really speak too much to it, but Showtime obviously has a big sort of boxing presence, um, but but we're some of the some of the big ones. So we've we've been able to sort of like hold on to that to that to that market and to that audience. Um, and uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, I would I would say the that's I know an area that. The company is is remains to be focused on. It's it's a it's a big it's a big opportunity for us, um, and a in a big sort of audience segment. So I, I'd say we're 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 really pleased with how that's been how it's been going. Let's take one from the back, maybe. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Courtney Smith. Um, well, I've been like writing for a while and. Um, you know, being such a big platform as like HBO or just like any kind of, you know, nationally syndicated or um, channel, um, what can you say about like, you know, having your content, um, like, you know, your creative content being kind of like, you know, blurred as, you know, uh, you're getting it into other people's hands? DT maybe, this one would be a good one for you. I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, well, just as in, like, you know, writing something and putting it out to the world and having, like, you know, some people kind of say, like, you know, I don't like it or you should change this. And, you know, it's kind of getting just messed up along the way. Like, I'm writing stuff and, like, I, I want to put it out. And, like, I understand, you know, you have creative um, critiques and stuff. But, like, for me having my stuff out there, I want to be able to, like, you know, say I'm proud of it without having to say a bunch of people changed it to what it is now. Gotcha. Well, 
it's funny because I'll, I'll, I'll give you a piece of advice that you're going to have to, all of you, you're going to have to make peace with, and I advise you to do it earlier <laughs> as opposed to later. Everybody gets notes. Everybody gets notes. It doesn't matter if I'm the executive producer and showrunner of a project. I may even come in with my own idea. I'm still going to get notes from two or three people. I may even get notes from the sponsor, right? Um, the hope is they're good notes. <laughs> they don't, they, but, but they don't conflict with, you know, the story you're trying to tell. Um, but everybody gets notes, and you have to make peace with that. And I think that, uh, you know, you talked earlier, Johnny, about your ethical, not dilemma, but, but the uh, ethics of the super PAC, right? In a sense, even that's kind of like getting notes. I've walked off of projects before. I haven't done it often, but there have been two or three times where I've walked away from shows because the notes were to the point where they, they weren't moving the project forward, and it had become something I didn't want my name on. And so you also have to know, you know, at some point, you know, is there a time to walk away? When the content originates with you, though, that's even more difficult, right? Because then there's this tendency to feel like, well, they're coming in and they're messing with my stuff. But that's also part of the price you pay to get your stuff out there, right? The gatekeeper controls the gate for a reason. So, um, you know, you just have to make peace with that. And I think at some point you have to decide, you know, for yourself and, and maybe on any given project, at what point is it too much? Um, and when has the message been diluted or the story been diluted to the point that uh, it's, it, you, it's not even yours anymore? But that is the price of admission. Let's end on a positive note and get some practical advice, maybe one tip, one line of advice for people looking to either get into the industry or maybe even transition into the industry. So, uh, thinking about this this morning, I would say be curious. Um, really be curious. When I moved to New York, I had a very small network. I sort of used the network I had to broaden my network. Um, I was struck by how many people were happy to connect me with other people and then those people sat down with me. I was amazed. Um, and so I try to do that now um, for other folks who reach out. But be curious, your network is one of your biggest, if not the biggest asset. So work, work on it, think about it, build it, and, and ask people questions because they're really happy to, for the most part, um, people are really happy to, to answer them. I kind of have two and I'll go quick. One is um, don't be above any task, job, situation. And, and going along with what Megan said, explore areas that you don't necessarily think you'd be interested in because in those areas you might find the people that can connect you to the people of the areas that you're interested in. But always, especially when you're first starting out, I mean, I had to pick up an actress's dog poop off of her dressing room floor and do all of that. And now I am a producer on a very successful HBO show. So don't ever be above any task. I'm gonna sort of go off of what DT said in terms of writing. I'm not a creative writer. I never have been and I don't have that talent. But 
I am a very good communicator, and I think that that's what's made me very successful. So work on your communication skills. Megan and I were just talking about this. Through emails, be professional. Um, understand that what you're, you know, if you don't understand what you're trying to communicate, ask someone else before you communicate it to the other party. I mean, be, be, because through your communication, people are going to, um, not judge you, that's a negative word, but they're going to sort of assess your abilities. And so I think, you know, writing, you know, in, in all of that, you know, speaking to other people, it's a, it's a huge part of, of the industry and relationships, very huge part of the industry. I would say be a problem solver. And I would, I would encourage you in that because it does two things. It, it gets you noticed by other people, right? For the fact that you solve the problem. But it also can afford you opportunities you may otherwise um, not have had. And I'll give you a quick example. My first job with ABC Sports was to sit in a production truck at a major event, and I had to sit by this phone that if anything went wrong with uh, the broadcast, you know, the executives from the network would call that phone. They never called. So my de facto job was to go get everybody's drinks. And what I really hoped would happen was that I could sit in the truck and watch how they worked. But because I was constantly running out to get coffee, I couldn't watch anything. And so this was at a sports event that went on over the course of a week. I went home very discouraged that first night, back to the hotel. And as I, as I sat in my hotel room and thought, how can I make this a better experience for me? The next day I took the coffee maker from the bathroom. <laughs> I stopped at a CVS on the way to the arena and bought a cooler and a bag of ice. I remembered what everybody had asked for the night before, they were pretty consistent with their habits. So I plugged the coffee maker into a power outlet on the bottom of the TV truck, brewed a pot of coffee, put the you know various uh, bottles of water, Diet Coke, half and half in the cooler, and then I went up and waited for the event to start. Like clockwork, just like the night before, we got about three minutes into the broadcast and everybody started asking for their drinks. I walked down, bam, 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 I was back in 30 seconds. They had what they wanted faster, and I wasn't running around for 20 minutes to collect all these things. I could actually watch. And what ended up happening at the second commercial break, the producer turned around and he said, how did you do that? <laughs> and, and, and I told him, and he, go, and he just kind of looked at me, and he goes, why? I said, well, I, want, I know who you are, and I want to know how you do what you do. And so then at the third commercial break, they invited me down to the front of truck. They let, you know, the producer and director let me, uh, you know, ask questions about the camera configuration. The TD let me switch. I mean, he should have never done that. It was a union <laughs> deal. But, but the fact of the matter is, then I got invited to go to Switzerland and work another event. And then I started doing all their football games. And, 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 and I only ever sat in the truck to do that job that first time. After that, I was Brent Musburger's stage manager. And then I was writing copy for Jim McKay. And, and so I say solve problems. It was better for them. They got what they wanted. They got it faster. But it also was better for me. I got to see what they were doing, get a better understanding of what was happening. And I also got noticed. Be a problem solver. Good. 
Yeah, I would just say, honestly, quality of work speaks for itself. At the end of the day, if you're not producing what you're doing with excellence, whatever your job is, if you don't do it with excellence, nothing else matters. Be the person, be the person that they can count on 100% of the time to go the extra mile, even if you're not getting paid as much as you should get paid. Go the extra mile and do it right. Produce quality content that's better than anybody else. Be better than everybody else. You have to. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how you get to, to the next level. Yeah. Just be better. Be the only option. Make people not want to go to somebody else because you're so much better and so much more of a hard worker than anybody else that they choose you first every time. Well, I feel revved up. Let's <laughs> thank all of our panelists for today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Future Now Media Podcast. Take a moment and leave a comment. We love hearing from our listeners and your feedback is important to us. And be sure to connect with us through Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim. And remember, a future now is a future one.